What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the Two Feet on the Ground Gravity Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Chris. Thank you for choosing to tune in today. Hey, folks, I'm excited about today's guest. I actually heard him on another podcast and the technology that he was talking about, taking the fight to human traffickers, blew my mind. And and so I went ahead and hit him up on, I think, LinkedIn, and he was extremely gracious, both in his response and in his willingness to come on the show. Uh, so we're going to be getting here in a second to Nick McKinley. He's a prior Air Force pararescueman, which is special special operations within the Air Force. Then he transitioned and eventually was a, a CIA intelligence officer and actually a chief of a country. And then he transitioned out of that life and started a company, a nonprofit called Deliver Fund. And Deliver Fund uses AI technology to hunt down human traffickers and to feed that information to law enforcement. It's going to be an exciting episode for you to hear what technology is allowing us to do. But before we get into the podcast, I want to talk about Service Peace Warriors. Service Peace Warriors is a 501c3 nonprofit that's dedicated to our nation's heroes. That's right, the men and women who are returning with war-related both physical and mental injuries. Service Peace Warriors has their back. They're raising all the money. They're training up both the service animal and the veteran, and they're equipping the veteran with the service animal, helping them heal their bodies and their brains. But they took it one step further. They wanted to help first responders as well. So they started Maddox Dog Training Academy, and they used the proceeds from Maddox to further fund service peace warriors and then also to equip first responders with service animals. If you haven't checked them out yet, please check them out today, servicepeacewarriors.org. With that, folks, let's get into this interview with Nick McKinley. Nick McKinley, welcome to the Gravity Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Chris. Hey, Brad. Great to be here. Um, I'm excited. It's uh, recording here on a Friday, leaning into a weekend. You know, I don't know why this just popped into my head, but this is my parents' 50th wedding anniversary today. Wow. Five zero. So when we're done- Congratulations to them. Yeah, when we're done recording here, we're going to go celebrate with them. Hey, Very soon is my seventh wedding anniversary. So I got it. I got it a bit to go. Now, is there like, do you do the numbers? Like, like, I don't know. Like I don't do the numbers. I don't know if, is there something special we're supposed to do or is that not until 10? Oh, I have no idea. Yeah. Good. Well, I just, I um, if my wife is listening to this every day with her is special. Therefore, you know, every day is, is just better than the one before. That's a really good answer. Really good. And that should be on like a Hallmark card or something. <laughs> It's what I do in my off time, write Hallmark cards. Yeah. Hey, brother, I introduced you a little bit in the intro. Can you just maybe introduce yourself? Tell tell us a little bit about your your background. Sure. Uh, Nick McKinley, I very pretty typical, uh, you know, childhood being raised in Montana. Didn't realize how lucky I was to live in Montana and wanted to get out, go see the world, join the Air Force. Spent 11 years in the Air Force pararescue teams, did a couple years in uh, the private equity community doing uh, private personnel recovery work, and then was recruited to the Central Intelligence Agency, where I spent a number of years in a uh, specialized unit as a special agent. And we essentially 
our mission was to facilitate operations in high threat areas, uh, make sure the you know sensor got in the right place and make sure that the asset got picked up and on the right street corner and, you know, everybody stayed safe and everybody, you know, got not only executed the mission successfully, but then also got to come home successfully. So it was, uh, it was a real fun time. Then I left to uh, really start a private intelligence company and I started Deliver Fund as a counter human trafficking company at the same time. Well, private, how long has that been a thing that, that there's private companies that are running intelligence? Is this a new sector or has this been going on for a while? Yeah, it goes all the way back to uh, George Washington. Oh, wow. You know, I mean, when you look at a lot of your intelligence work that's done around the globe, a lot of it, and I would say probably the lion's share is actually done by private companies. Those are private companies that contract for governments, contract for businesses. Uh, everybody needs intel. And there's not always a government aligned purpose for that, uh, especially when you start talking about capitalism intel, who's doing what and how do we get a competitive advantage that intel uh, there's always there's always needs there and a lot of the private intel is actually private counter intel so you know how do we establish processes and procedures to keep companies or to keep maybe foreign governments from stealing our intellectual property uh, to keep other employees from stealing our intellectual property who's a potential insider threat what are our outside threats those types of things Wow. What guided you with, with deliver phone? What guided you to, that was going to be your post, you know, CIA occupation that you wanted to make an impact on human trafficking. I saw human trafficking happening when I was in the air force. I just didn't realize exactly that's what it was. And then fast forward to the private personnel recovery stuff I was doing. I ended up having some connections to a human trafficking case that we were kind of work joint working with the FBI and then at the CIA, once I had kind of known what it was, I was seeing it happen everywhere. And it wasn't until we had a human trafficking case. It was in uh, Southern Afghanistan in Helmand province. And we had a human trafficking case that kind of had smoking gun intel against a human trafficker on the, on the Pakistani side of the border. And there was really nobody to report that intel to. It's like, where, where does human trafficking intel go? Right. The way that uh, people, I like to help people under think about this is, we have a, a drug enforcement agency, which does very important work, but 90% of drugs are legal. So like cocaine is a legal scheduled drug that ophthalmologists use, but there's illicit purposes for that. So we have, we spend billions and billions of dollars every year fighting a war on drugs where 90% of those drugs are legal. Fentanyl is legal, right? Yeah. For certain purposes on a schedule. So how about, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. Last time I checked, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms are all legal. In fact, you probably have them all within arm's reach of you right now. And yet we have a Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms that spends billions of dollars a year fighting what is the illicit sale of legal commodities. 100% of human slavery is illegal per the 13th Amendment. And who's got the ball on that issue? Your law enforcement. How many human trafficking detectives are in your department? Well, we actually do have a unit that focuses on the younger side of it. Um, younger side, usually child crimes. But what about a 20-year-old girl who's being trafficked out of college? Yeah, they don't. They, right? focus, they focus on the kids. 
Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, between 2010 and 2015, I believe it is, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children found that they had an 846% increase in suspected child trafficking cases. And that's just on the child side. So why is that? Well, it's because of smartphones. It's because of essentially broadband connected microcomputers that are in everybody's pockets that make it so that a customer of the commercial sex industry can order a child to their hotel room when they're on business travel, the same way they can order a pizza and it's roughly the same price. So where is the line, the lion's share of the law enforcement effort to fight that problem? It doesn't exist outside of state and local law enforcement, right? It's not that the feds don't do anything. It's just that the feds have a million things going on and they're overworked and underpaid like everybody else in law enforcement. And so there's there's no real connectivity on cases across the country. If there's a human trafficking case in New Jersey and a human trafficking case in Nebraska that have the same uh, the same players, but it's being run at the state and local law enforcement level, those state and local law enforcement officers don't know each other and have no idea that their cases connect. And that's the problem we solve through data and software. And I knew that that was an incredibly successful methodology in the war on terror. So why wouldn't it work against what is essentially another illicit commodity being sold on a black market, which are, you know, people, uh, we just use the same methodology. And so we just give data to law enforcement along with software products when they need it. And then we keep them up to date on the latest and greatest uh, within the human trafficking market. So they can go do what they do and only they can do, which is point guns at bad guys and put handcuffs on them. Yes. And put them in jail and hopefully prison, hopefully federal prison, federal prison has mandatory minimums. Well, we we have a hundred percent conviction rate on the cases we've been involved in that have gone to court, which is hundreds at this point. Most of them go to a plea deal just because the 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 cyber intelligence, right, is binary. Either that human trafficker, either either information associated with a human trafficker is or is not on that advertisement for a 16-year-old girl with her shirt off. That is either a true statement of fact or it is not. And so that's why most of these cases go to a plea deal. And um, one of the reasons why we've kind of been a victim of our own success where prosecutors absolutely love when their law enforcement detectives work with Deliver Fund. And I didn't realize this going into it. Um, I didn't realize how little I knew about law enforcement. When I was at the CIA, I figured, you know, CSI Miami, that's a follow documentary, right? I mean, law enforcement can just, you know, solve a murder in 24 hours and move satellites and tap into cameras when they need to, right? And no problem. You guys have this massive tactical operations center, right? In every city. That creates and, a real uh, challenge for us with our victims because they're like, what's wrong with you? And it's like, hey, it's, it's not like on TV. It's going to take a year to get blood back on a DUI, 12 months to get yeah. a blood analysis back on a DUI. And it's just like, it's, it's ridiculous how slow it is. Yeah. And that's one of the things I didn't realize. And so when I started working with law enforcement, I, um, I thought law enforcement was connected across the country, very similar to the way, you know, countries are connected on the counterterrorism front. I figured that law enforcement had a lot more training and access to technologies than they did. And when we started helping, we, we very quickly realized that 
this was not an issue where law enforcement needed, you know, people to go do surveillance and kick doors and do that kind of stuff with them. And it's really irritating to me when I see former special operators coming out of the wars, quite frankly, disrespecting law enforcement by saying, you know, all right, law enforcement officers, we know you guys have been doing this for a hundred years, but we just came out of Afghanistan. So step aside and we'll show you what to do. No, I mean, our rules of engagement and things that we got to do, I mean, you know, it's a significantly different threat. Last time I checked, law enforcement officers aren't really going up against, you know, RPGs and belt-fed machine guns in the United States. However, you know, you get in a firefight in Afghanistan, there's no paperwork really at the end of it unless you're a team leader. And law enforcement officer, every single time they, they you know, squeeze the trigger, they're potentially on the hook for a murder investigation like that is a lot of stress to deal with and so i realized that what law enforcement really needed was a technology hack the companies that build technology and build software were not there's no business case for them to build tools for law enforcement because law enforcement doesn't have any money like the addressable market there is incredibly small <laughs> so we we started building the that technology and building that tech that protects not only society from the law enforcement officer or i mean from the uh the human trafficker but also protects the mind of the law enforcement officer so they don't have to ingest so much of that bad information, uh, you know, especially the bad visual information at such an, a high aggregate scale and taking those exact same things we were doing in the war on terror and pivoting them and fine tuning them for the fight against human trafficking and then giving them for free to law enforcement so that law enforcement could collectively do their job better, faster and cheaper. Yeah. Yeah. I was a child crime detective for two years at my agency and and I tapped out after two years. Sure. And two years is quite a while to make it. Usually it's about eight months. Yeah. I was like, you need to move me to burglaries. Like, I don't, like, I care that someone stole your TV and I'm going to try to get it back and I'll chase after criminals. I mean, that's, that's the fun stuff, but I'm not losing sleep over your big screen TV. I'm losing sleep over little Susie and little Johnny. Right. Right. I mean, right. that's, that was the stuff right. that the vicarious trauma really screwed with my head. And even though oh, yeah. I should have known better as a third generation cop, meaning just knowing that, hey, this job's going to be stressful and I got to make sure I'm doing all these things for stress management skills, it it just totally overtook me and took me down a, a pretty dark rabbit hole for a little bit with uh, with some, some PTSI and whatnot. So, But you can't, you, you can't get around that. And I think that's something that's very important for people to understand is that we all think that, oh, well, we can compartmentalize that. It's not a big deal. And the reality is, is, no, you can't. You might be able to handle exposure longer than somebody else, but that does not mean that you can compartmentalize. It just means that you break down slower than somebody else, but eventually you break down. And that's actually the more dangerous piece because we all know the, you know, it's stellar operator who is just an absolute shell of a human because they they just turn themselves into a robot i went down that road myself where i i i was like i will be the fastest i will be the strongest i will be the fastest on the gun i you know i will be the best um at doing the you know tactical level analysis and just kind of turned myself into a robot you know completely devoid of any and all feeling because that's what I needed to do to be the best at all of those different things. And so, 
yes, we can do these things, but then at what price? And then when it's gone and you no longer have that mission to pursue, well, what's next? So part of the tech that we build is trying to make it easier and easier for law enforcement officers and analysts, uh, some of the unsung sung heroes and all this and prosecutors and all the, the whole system to not have to ingest so much of the of the material because the material just the visualization of the material to a normal brain is what causes the problems and so and it and it's in aggregate right it's not the one photo it's the hundred and one photo yeah. right or for maybe for some people the thousandth photo but whatever that that aggregate uh stress um literally causes brain structure differences and and so which then leads to brain problems that get diagnosed as depression or PTSD or things like that, but it's actually structural issues that are changing. And with, it's really fascinating that our emotions or lack thereof can actually cause brain structure, like, like physical changes in our brain. That's fascinating to me. Yes. That's very similar to getting you know hit in the head and having a traumatic brain injury. Well, what happens when we have traumatic brain injury and these, you know, vicarious trauma issues all kind of compounding and compounding in a place that nobody can see, right? With symptoms that seem like the same symptoms for everything else. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating from a scientific per perspective, but it's also, I think, completely terrifying from a human perspective. And it's something that I know my uh, old world and the, the special ops community and the Intel operators community, it's something that you don't talk about. It's something you're not trained in. And, and so you end up with this whole suffer and silence mentality where you just ignore and override everything that happens inside of you. And then again, the next thing you know, you're, you're a robot. So yeah. having law enforcement officers, first responders, military operators, intelligence operators understand that this is no different than twisting your ankle and you need to seek help just like you would if you broke your ankle. I mean, I have a, I have a pin in one of my ankles. They had to like reconstruct it and put it all together after an accident. So why, and I wasn't ashamed of going and to the orthopedist and getting surgery and getting all these medical modalities applied to what was a broken part of my body so that I could get back in the fight. So why are we ashamed if our brain has some damage and we have to seek medical modalities in order to heal that part of our body, which is, by the way, the most important part in a fight, right? Brain is significantly more important than your ankle. Uh, why are we ashamed of then going out and getting you know, medical treatments in order to fix that part of our body so that we can get back in the fight? And, and that is a something I'm very passionate about is getting, you know, both the, the operational community, everybody this affects to understand that this is, um, that this is completely normal. And also that you're not as strong as you think you are. Yes. You know, that I know you still stay connected from what I've heard with, with people in the special operations community, mentoring them. Clearly somebody's talking out of school. 
Well, I'm just listening. I'm just listening to you on other podcasts, brother. That's all it is. Oh, okay. I listen to you in other yeah. podcasts and I hear you make comments like that. In in the law enforcement first responder world, we've seen a huge change. We're not there. We haven't arrived. But we didn't talk about this stuff. When I was a child right. crime detective in, in 08 and 09, I wasn't talking about this stuff, right? I wasn't talking about the fact that that stuff disturbed me. And and now your, your brainstorms is flooded with these images that you've oh. seen. And it's like, you feel disgusting as this stuff comes in and anything you try to not think about, that's all you're going to do, right? Yeah. You, you don't, don't think about purple elephants. That's all I see right now is a big yeah. freaking purple elephant right in front of the screen. Right. And so what we've really, what I've seen there, there's a number of folks around the country that I think are really leading the way with trying to smash the stigma and raising their hand and saying, Hey, uh, let me tell you my story about when I wasn't okay. And mm-hmm. the, the more of those stories that come out, and I, I like Colonel Hackworth's book about face, where he talks about, yeah, that, you know, he says that when their cups filled up, it didn't undo the fact that they were courageous soldiers. Their cup was just full, right? Their cup mm-hmm. was just full. And it, if you're struggling with anxiety, depression, you, it doesn't undo the fact that you were a courageous cop, courageous operator, courageous firefighter, whatever profession mm-hmm. you're in. It's just a, like you said, an injury. What, what do you think in the special operations communities? And I realize you're, you were in in the Air Force, but kind of the bigger picture is this a thing now where it's okay to be like, "Hey, I, I need to I need to fix my brain," or are we still have a long ways to go? Uh, so, from what I gather, and again, I've been out for I've been out of it longer than I was in it, but um, in the I know in the pararescue teams, and I think the same is true for. Special forces, I've heard the same for the SEAL teams. And, you know, I don't I don't know about the Rangers or any of that, but but the they're taking the cognitive side of human performance much more seriously. Uh, we had occasional, you know, physical fitness trainers and whatnot when I was in, and they would send us to different courses and you know, for and it was all fitness related, right? All about the the chassis of the race car, never the engine. And now, you know, they're taking the cognitive performance side much more seriously, both both on the on the upfront side of like, hey, let's keep you from getting traumatic, traumatic brain injuries. Let's, you know, let's take the trauma to the brain more seriously, like the physical trauma. Right. I mean, I remember I was on a free fall jump in very high winds. The the winds, the winds were right at the the level that we were allowed to jump at but it was, it was still within limits. But by the time, uh, we got to altitude exited the aircraft, it was just a training jump, but exited the aircraft. And by the time we were under canopy, uh, the winds had increased by like 10 or 15 knots. It was, I mean, it was ridiculous, but there you are under canopy. And it's not like you can escape the winds Uh, turned off. uh, This was in Georgia. It turned out there was a, a hurricane off the coast that was just kind of moving in a lot more quick than people thought. And so by the time we landed on the airfield, I ended up missing the target. Most of us missed the target. Some of the guys ended up in trees and I ended up on the runway and I eggshelled a Gentex helmet, which for anybody who knows what that is, like, that's kind of a big deal. Uh, like hit so hard that I, you know, like when you push in on an eggshell and you get that little fracture, I, I did that to a Gentex helmet. Well, I was nauseous. I felt terrible. All the signs of concussion. And my team leader was basically just told me to freaking blow it off. And um, we got up and did another jump. 
rub some dirt on and it. and I yeah and it was like wow like I I I went home lay down on my couch Friday evening I was supposed to meet some guys at at a bar woke up Sunday afternoon just slept through the entire weekend and was nauseous memory issues I mean all the symptoms were there but I was back at work on Monday you know, flying around doing the things that we were doing. And so that doesn't happen anymore from what I understand that it's, you know, I'm sure operators take it too far, but their leadership takes the brain health a lot more seriously. And I think that that's pretty SOCOM and, and JSOC wide now uh, where they're, where they're doing that. And I just think it's because people are talking about it more. Like you have, you know, I, I see a warrior's, uh, warrior's heart hat, you know, guys like Greg Birch and Spooner and those dudes out there just absolutely, I mean, those guys were the, you know, kind of the pinnacle of the operational community. I mean, Birch is a legend among legends. And yet it, he, he, he used to work for Deliver Fund for a little while. And those guys are talking about the issues that they're dealing with. And I think what happens is, is the younger guys come along and go, oh, well, <laughs> these guys if it's okay for them to talk about what they're dealing with, then it's probably okay for me to talk about what I'm dealing with. Yes. And then the research coming out around operator syndrome, the various things that are, are happening is that we are now, it, it's like, it's like a divorce, right? My unit at the, at the, at the CIA had an 86% divorce rate. One of the reasons I left was because I found an amazing woman that I wanted to marry. And I was pretty sure I was not going to be the guy who managed to slip through that 86% divorce rate. So, uh, since I was part of it to begin with, so I went ahead and left now, nobody's, a, nobody's ashamed to talk about their divorces in team rooms. It's darn near a running joke. Nobody's ashamed to talk about their knee surgery or their different physical injuries in team rooms. And then more importantly, when other guys get those injuries to say, Hey, here's how I dealt with it. Other guys are going through a divorce. They're like, Hey, here's the things I wish I would have known up front. Right. And they're helping each other. Well, I don't see how the brain trauma and the brain issues are any different because those brain, those brain issues very quickly lead to heart issues. Uh, and I don't mean physical heart issues. I mean the, you know, emotional soul issues. And so for guys to say, Hey, you know, I, I had this problem, a physical injury turned into a, turned out it was a brain injury. And the psychologists were telling me I just had PTSD or the psychologists were telling me I was depressed and they put me on these medications and whatnot. It turns out that had nothing to do with it. The symptoms were the same as if somebody had been through an actual chemical issue in their brain. However, it was a structural issue. And here's how I dealt with it. And I think it's a community, you know, and, and when I say community, I mean, writ large law enforcement, first responders military, you know, intelligence, all the people who kind of deal with these things, right? Your sales guy, you know, orthopedics company isn't dealing with these issues, right? But your the the community that does have to deal with these issues as a professional consequence all help each other and 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 then as we come together and help each other and we'll actually distill out some best practices. Of, hey, here's what you do. Here's what works. Here's what doesn't work. Right. The um, hyperbaric oxygen therapy seemed to really work for me. Somebody else's tens therapy really worked for them. Well, what if we combine them? You know, a combination of the mind body cocktail that the that the 
uh, aim and clinics put together along with, you know, maybe some, you know, lithium treatments along with some modafinil, right? How does that come together? Right. And so we just start, we start comparing notes and we say, Hey, Nick, you were in a really rough place at one time. I remember that. And you seem a lot better. What did you do? Oh man, let me freaking tell you. And then let me connect you into the system that has worked for me. So then they don't have to take three to four years to figure that out. They can just hack that. And then that person can come back and say, Hey, Nick, um, thanks for introducing me to Dr. Amen. That worked really well for me. And I also did this. You might want to try it. And then we can kind of collectively heal each other. I really think that's the only, the only way we're going to get to the bottom of this, these problems. Yeah. Yeah. I agree, brother. That's when I was struggling, I had some people come to me and, and do a couple of things. One, they, they gave me encouragement. They told me a little bit of their story. Right. And when I, these are people I respect. So as they told me this historic story of them struggling and healing, it gave me hope. You know, my counselor's telling me, Hey, we're going to be able to help you here. But I didn't totally yeah. believe her. Right. Like, I mean, like, a, like, I might be the except I'm, I'm, I'm going to be the unicorn that can't get fixed type thing. Cause again, I thought I was literally going crazy. I like that. That was pretty powerful. You, you meet this woman and you leave the CIA, you leave your profession. I, I was listening to another podcast. I think it was Andy's. And you said, what I do is not who I am. Was that the first oh, yeah. moment in life where <laughs> you had that maturity or had it, had it come previously, like as you were coming out of the air force or when did you finally graduate to that wisdom i would say i'm in the process of graduating (laughs) so so thank you for thinking i've arrived but trust me i'm still on the path uh i think that for people who are who are mission focused and and i've always been amazed at like men and uh in particular who are not mission focused and then you get to, or at least don't seem to be mission focused. And then you give them a mission and you find out that all of a sudden, bam, they are mission focused. Right. So I think that some of us just kind of figured that out a little bit younger, but the, like, what I do is not who I am. What I do is a, is a consequence often of who I am. And and we have to be careful with that. We have to both embrace it and be careful of it. So when you go into, I think law enforcement is very much this way. Um, you know, we've got the great honor at Deliver Fund of we work with over 600 law enforcement agencies across the country uh, and a few across the globe. And so we we get the opportunity to find that, you know, law enforcement is a population and population distribution curves apply to all populations, right? It doesn't matter how sophisticated it is. I'm, I mean, I remember working with CAG and there were dudes that I'd meet and they're just like, man, these guys are like superhuman and other guys I'd meet and be like, how did you get in here? <laughs> right. Uh, same thing with damn neck or any of the other units that I've worked with. Um, and law enforcement's the same way. It's like some of these detectives would be curing cancer if they weren't detectives. And some of them, it's like, how did you, how did you get in here? <laughs> and so the, we all tend to be people who are drawn to these types of, of careers. Then we get in there at young ages and we have these very senior people telling us that this is now our identity and who we are because it's always been that way when the reality is this is who we are is who we are and this is now what we do and what we do might be a consequence of who we are and the way that we were built but it's not our identity we are our identity right you think of your 
the men and women you've worked with, they're, they're, you guys might all be on a team, which are very different personalities and very different people from very different backgrounds and walks of life and, and beliefs and socioeconomic statuses and uh, strengths and weaknesses. We're all individuals. So why do we have, and, and we accept that other people are individuals. We're, we're very accepting of other people but why are we not accepting of the fact that we are an individual who happens to be part of a epic mission and an epic team, right? So yes. it, it's, it's, it's something that I think we're constantly graduating towards, to use your word. It's something we're, we're constantly walking towards because it's very easy to say, oh, I'm, a, I'm an Air Force pararescueman. I'm darn proud to be an Air Force pararescueman because that statistically is one of the hardest special operations selection processes and trainings in the world. Okay, cool. And I can do really cool things. And we do these things that others may live. And, ooh, what's this shiny object over there? Oh, those guys are with the CIA. That's cool. Maybe I want to go try that for a little while, right? But, I mean, I'm still a shooter, right? I'm still doing kind of medical stuff over there, even though it's it's very secondary or tertiary. And then oh, now I'm going to go fight human trafficking, right? So now I'm the human trafficking fighter. And then it's, well, actually, I'm the CEO who tries to keep the lights on so that everybody else in my team could go fight human trafficking, right? And so so now you don't even have that. And if you are so tied, and we all know these people who are so tied to what they think is their mission, and it's not really their mission, to what they think is their mission, they're so tied to that as their identity that they never progress really uh, as people beyond I am a fill in the blank. Yes. And, and I think that is, uh, that's, it's, uh, it's dangerous because it's dangerous to that individual because while they might be professionally very successful, they absolutely destroy the relationships and the people around them in the process. Um, and I don't say that from a point of judgment. I say that fully as uh, as a path I've walked. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you bringing it back to de Deliver Fund there. Let's get into that a little bit. Sure. There's AI that, like, I, I was listening to one YouTube video you were on that says that you can speed up the detection from 21 days to three hours. 20, yeah. 21 days, I'm not catching anyone. They're gone three hours like now you just put it you just put it, us in the game you just put law enforcement in the game for arresting some of these folks oh and that that's old data um i can tell you we just we just built a proof of concept where we took 160 man hours right so 160 hours of human time and processed the same amount of data in 18 minutes so think about that and and that was a proof of concept so once my incredibly bright engineers that we have working at deliver fund fine tune all those dials and get it working better it's going to be less than 18 minutes so when you look at human trafficking writ large one of the things i think a lot of people don't understand is the major majority of, of human trafficking activity starts online right human traffickers sell an illicit commodity people or time with people uh on a black market and they have a virtually unlimited demand Right. And until we can figure out how to change the hearts of men, there's always going to be an unlimited demand. So and the supply, so to speak here, the commodity is vulnerable people, which is pretty much all people at some point in their life. 
So you have an unlimited supply with a virtually unlimited demand. You your prices bottomed out in the market. So human traffickers have to do they have to do business at at high volume, right? They have to do they have to do business at a at a high scale. And the way they do that is like every other business that needs to do that. They advertise on the internet. And a lot of people don't understand that. Now, within those advertisements on the internet, there's a lot of scams. There's a lot of uh, spam. There's some prostitution. And most law enforcement officers that we work with would much rather spend their time fighting human trafficking than they would prostitution, right? Most of the vice units and stuff that we work with. So they'll... They're fine to go fight prostitution if all the human trafficking is taken care of, but they really, you know, triage and prioritize those cases. Traditionally, what has happened is law enforcement will throw up a fake advertisement and they're just kind of throwing stuff against the wall to see what sticks. And they get some customers and they get they get some uh, some work done. But as somebody in the industry I was talking to today said, they're not even mowing the lawn. They're they're barely weed whacking the edges. And so, okay, how do we change that? Well, the way we change that is to bring, within all this noise of the internet, we bring the law enforcement officer the signal. So instead of saying, hey, there's a human trafficker in Minneapolis, we say, you know, Nick McKinley is at this apartment complex, he's running three girls, and he's currently in, in Minneapolis. Right. That's how you get it done. And we do it in such a way that our computers pull in everything. So all the URLs, all the data we collect is there. So law enforcement can parallel reconstruct those cases. So as you know, I can tell you that somebody's a human trafficker and you cannot legally take action to restrict the liberty of that individual that I said is a human trafficker. You have to do an investigation. Uh, now I can tell you exactly where to look to find everything. And so uh, I like to call us, uh, refer to us as we're the sites on the subpoena gun. We can't hold the gun. We can't fire the gun, but we can tell you exactly where to point it. And we can give you all the probable cause you need in order to take action as a law enforcement officer. Well, law enforcement officers have get tips all the time. In fact, the volume of tips is actually a problem because what would you say from your experience 90% of the tips actually don't meet the legal threshold for the crime. Yeah. Oh yeah. Or at least, if not more. Yeah. So, so if, if, okay, if every time a law enforcement officer gets a hundred tips, which happens in some major jurisdictions almost daily, they have to comb through 98 of those tips in order to find a single, a, a single thread to pull on. Oh, and by the way, the chief needs them in their office. Oh, and by the way, we need them to, to pull security on this event that's coming into town because the president is doing a speech. And oh, by the way, um, we need them to do this mandatory in-service training. And oh, now they're on vacation. And okay, now they're back. And oh, now there's 3,000 tips on their desk. And 98% of them are noise. That's the problem. That's the problem. And so that's the problem that we solve is by by sp- uh, literally spoon feeding the human trafficking data that law enforcement officers need on a silver platter. And right now that's a combination of software collection and manual human processes. In the next 36 months, that will be completely automated. 
and you actually won't even need a human in the loop and we will actually serve up better data than a human can serve up right now and we'll serve it up in near real time how do you bridge the gap though because the challenge that i've ran into in these type of things where that's where i suspect this isn't just prostitution this is human trafficking one of the challenges is usually the trafficker has threatened this victim to the point of, you know, especially if they have family geographically separated somewhere else, if they're not originally from the U S if you tell the police, we will kill your family. And so the challenge we've run into is the victim. Nope. I'm, I'm fine. I mean, they aren't, you know what I'm saying? We, we, we really have that. And especially if English isn't their first language, I mean, there's, there's, well, that's one of the, that's one of the problems is that law enforcement have traditionally, have traditionally relied on victim outcries. And obviously that's the gold standard, but it's not the only standard, right? And a great question, a great way to look at this is how many of your um, child exploitation cases you were working as a child crimes detective required the child to testify? How many murder cases require the dead person to testify? So we've got it all wrong. How many money laundering cases require the people in the loop of the money laundering to testify. None of them. It's math. You either did or did not put that dollar in the bank, right? Mm-hmm. Did or did not launder the, the dollar. And so what's great about the modern human trafficking market, if you can say that anything's great, is that it predominantly happens online, which means there's a bunch of binary ones and zeros that give you the that tell you exactly what happened. Now, the the interesting thing here that I didn't understand coming into this um, is the inherent, um, shall we call it, tension between prosecutors and law enforcement detectives, uh, right? It's a nice way the, to say it. The detectives think that the prosecutors are a bunch of, you know, risk averse lawyers and the lawyers think that the detectives are a bunch of, you know, you know, violence, happy cowboys. And the reality is, um, you know, there's a, there's a tension in our legal system designed by the founding fathers for a reason. And then you have judges, which is a whole other issue, especially in the modern electronic age, because you have judges who are, you know, 75 years old, have a flip phone, don't understand anything to do with computer science or technology, and yet are trying to make decisions about highly, highly technical cases, and they can barely remember their own phone number, Right. <laughs> You're laughing because it's true. I'm only so, laughing because the judges in my jurisdiction are, are much younger. So they, they, they know when good, they, good. some of and my that, friends that are judges great. that hear me laughing know that I'm not laughing at them. <laughs> yeah. And that's great. And, and also, I think all of us, you know, we, we, uh, if we can't laugh at ourselves, like we, we're taking ourselves too seriously. So one of the things that we try to do is work within the entire system. So oftentimes law enforcement officers are incredible investigators, especially because of their experience on the ground, but they just have a hard time articulating why things are connected to um, each other. And they have to do that in a word document or some type of narrative. So we give them link analysis tools so they can literally just show the prosecutor a picture. Um, the prosecutors are you know, way overworked and underpaid, just like the law enforcement officers and everybody's tired and trying to figure out the best way to help, uh, you know, these, these cases and help close them. Now you're trying to get juries to understand, grand juries to understand. You're trying to get judges to understand what's going on. You got defense attorneys saying, no, no, the Internet was hacked. And the judge was like, oh, I read an article about hacking. So, yeah, I guess that could happen. Right. We 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 try to we try to be 
the common neutral player in the entire system so that information can just get passed. The ball can get passed from one person to the next and eventually get it into the end zone in a way that makes everybody able to understand. So a lot of times in, in the cases we're involved with, victims actually don't have to testify because the prosecutor has everything they need, um, right? They haven't taken the victim testifying off the table, but the the prosecutor has everything they need and usually the human traffickers on a public defender, and even if they're not, they they get a uh, they get a plea out of it because the electronic evidence is so damning. And it, the, tradi- the uh, traditionally, what has always happened is you know human traffickers use burner, burner numbers. They use all these different uh, ways of kind of obfuscating their identity. But when you're collecting data in aggregate, the human trafficker has to be absolutely perfect in their trade graft in order to never get caught. And let me tell you, I can tell you firsthand, professionally trained spies screw this up all the time. So if highly selected, professionally trained intelligence professionals screw this up, how often do you think traffickers screw it up? Where they accidentally put their real phone number on the ad instead of the burner phone number, or they put this girl's burner phone number on that girl's advertisement, right? And so by collecting all of this data in aggregate, you can start to overlay the data, see a lot of bright spots on the map and say, okay, this is obviously this person over here. And instead of just uh, dropping a subpoena on one Facebook account, we know we've got 32 Facebook accounts or Instagram accounts to subpoena. Uh, And then that brings all that data together. So then the prosecutor can just lay that out and say, well, as you can see, the number that you were in possession of, according to Verizon at this time is now on this advertisement. And we have, you know, uh, cell tower data that shows that you were actually in this vicinity of this advertisement at this time. And so, and oh, by the way, uh, when we pulled you over, you had this girl in the back of your car and she had heroin in her system. That, is, that either is, is or is not true, regardless of anything that the victim says. Yes. So that's why this is so important. So now, what I like to do is, what I like to call it is, um, we allow law enforcement officers and prosecutors to walk the trafficker down the hallway of charges. Which charge would you like? Money laundering, <laughs> man act, pimping and prost- or you know, uh, uh, pimping and pandering, aggravated prostitution, right? Um, usually they have a gun in the car and they're felons, so you get those charges. Uh, they usually have narcotics in the tr- in the car, so you get those charges. Which one do you want? Uh, there's a very, very cool case that we were involved in in Arizona. The guy's name is Antoine Mack. Uh, very violent, uh, uh, terrible, terrible human human trafficker. He's currently serving a prison sentence, and none of his charges were human trafficking. And he got like thirty some years. Uh, and they got him on money laundering and and you know running a house of ill repute and all these different all these different state level charges, and they just stacked up the stacked up the charges and he actually went to court he fought it he had the resources to do that and he uh he lost so the the electronic evidence is is what we're we're trying to help the law enforcement officers and the prosecutors and the judges and even juries uh all understand that it's it's binary Right. It, it is it is especially when you're collecting so much data in in aggregate the way that we are. What what if there is no law enforcement entity? Did I hear that you guys 
also have relationships with some major businesses to where you can just shut these people down. Yes, um, we we do have relationships with uh, I mean publicly traded companies. Then that's everything from banks to hospitality companies, so that we can we can complicate their lives significantly. So even if you have say no law enforcement assets in a jurisdiction that that can take on the case, and it's not because they don't want to, it's just their task saturated. No problem. You just complicate their life and push them into another jurisdiction. Uh, and it might be that that data just sits there and follows that trafficker for six months to a year before they finally end up in a jurisdiction where they're going to get wrapped up. But eventually it's going to happen. That is crazy cool. Have, yeah. you, have you tried connecting with some businesses? And you probably don't want to name them, but and they, they, they're not willing to help you with it? There was one hotel chain we connected with who told one of our sales guys uh, when he told him what we could help him do, said, why would we want to know that? Uh, I would love to say their name publicly so everybody could boycott them, but they could legally go after me in a way that I can't afford. So yeah. I'm going to go ahead and keep my mouth shut on that. Yeah. Yeah. But for the most part, our, our customer base is some of the largest companies in the world. Uh, unfortunately it's some of the companies that get demonized, uh, in this and they're doing the best they can and we're, and we're helping them with that. Love it. So, I mean, what experiences, I mean, you're a PJ, mm-hmm. you're CIA, deliver fund. And then you decided, Hey, let's start roasting coffee beans. Where, where did <laughs> yeah, that come actually, from? So we do that through a third party provider. Um, but we, uh, we're all about sustainable philanthropy. And, uh, and so, you know, how do we, how do we subsidize our donors funds? Uh, so like if you donate a dollar, it has the power of a dollar in 15 cents as an example, a dollar and 25 cents. Well, we do that through everything from, you know, the swag that we sell on our website to, you know, a subsidiary coffee company called Thrivers Coffee that we launched uh, in order to, you know, earn as much revenue as we can to subsidize the donor dollars that fund what is millions of dollars worth of technical infrastructure? You know, we don't get a deal from Microsoft or Amazon on our on our technical infrastructure. Uh, we have our own supercomputer, um, so we're doing some extremely high level computation. Uh, we have all that stuff, uh, and we're doing uh, we're, we're we're providing the infrastructure that, quite frankly, law enforcement should have. I mean, every every law enforcement department should have their own supercomputer because then you wouldn't have to wait 12 months to get a, uh, a blood drawback because that's all it's doing is it's going someplace they're pulling, they're doing a chemical analysis, which is basically mathematics. And then they're taking that math and putting it into a big computer uh, with a lot of computational power and they're getting an answer to the, to the question and then they're sending you the answer to the question, right? So, so, so it's not that it's complicated to do that. It's that there's not enough uh, both resources in times of people and technical infrastructure to do that. So until we can solve that problem that every, you know, law enforcement jurisdiction has their own supercomputer, we we actually try to do that for them on the human trafficking side. And all right, so that's millions of dollars worth of technical infrastructure. We got to pay for it. And that's where our donors come in, which uh, we've got incredibly generous donors and everything from people who donate five bucks a month to people who donate significantly, you know, more in the six figures range. And then we um, we supplement that with our own 
earned revenue. And that's why we launched a coffee company. I love it. Plus, you know, someone's got to compete with Evan for his customers, right? (laughs) And cool guy coffee, you know. Yeah, those guys are awesome. (laughs) Hey, what do you do to keep yourself mentally well nowadays? Like, what do you do to stay active? What's kind of your hobbies or your go-to? One, thank you for assuming I'm I'm mentally healthy. So that's (laughs) awesome. That means I'm in the right direction. (laughs) Um, What do I do? Um, I, I take it very seriously. And I don't think, I don't think there's anything that anybody does that works for anybody else. I think that, I, I think the first step to mental health is the same thing as the first step to physical health. You start taking it seriously. And if you start taking it seriously and actually care, then everything else falls into place, right? I, I used to work with this guy, the computer dude, and out of Alabama, he, he was always talking about how he wanted to be in shape and he was like really into guns and all this stuff, even though he never did any of that stuff for real. And, uh, I was out at his headquarters doing some work with him and, and, uh, the guy's like eating Chick-fil-A every morning. I was like, no, <laughs> if you're eating Chick-fil-A every morning for breakfast, I mean, Chick-fil-A is an amazing company and they have make, they make amazing food, but it's not, it's not it's not your daily sus, uh, you know, sustenance. Yeah. And for him, it was, well, that was breakfast every morning. Well, if you're eating Chick-fil-A for breakfast every morning, you're not taking your health seriously. If you are drinking scotch every day, you're not taking your mental health seriously. You're just not. Uh, you know, the Huberman podcast did a great, great episode on alcohol's effects on the brain. This is not a lot, not to demonize alcohol, you know, drink up if you've got the gray matter to spare. But if you're in the community, you probably don't have as much gray matter to spare as you think you do. And so if you are not measuring your brain activity, right, or if you are not actively trying to build your brain, then you're not taking it seriously. Right. So so that's. That I think is, is just the only thing anybody needs to do. They just need to take their brain health as seriously as they take the other things that are important to them and everything else will fall into place. Hmm. I like it. It's not the three step, right? You didn't just get the three steps that people can just copy you. But the reality is, is people would grab whatever it is that you're doing and they would try it. And then something just isn't going to fit into their life routines. Right. And so well, it's like, it's like if somebody's getting into archery, they start taking it seriously. So they start watching YouTube videos about what gear they should buy. And then they, you know, visit their local archery shop and they talk to the pros and then they start practicing and okay, well, next thing you know, they're pretty decent at archery because they took it seriously. Same goes for anything anybody decides to do. So if, if you're going to be serious about your brain health, well, then you'll, start doing some research and you'll start talking to other people about it and you'll start listening to podcasts about it and maybe go see a neurologist um highly highly recommend uh the amen clinics but that's not even close to the only ones there's tons of great great uh neurology clinics out there that understand this uh the best place to find those is in podcasts and youtubes and talking to your buddies who've been down this road who took it seriously before you did right so you see how like just just saying i'm gonna start taking my brain health seriously is opens the door to everything you need to do uh in order to make that happen 
Yeah, I like it. Hey, Nick, if people are not following you and they're listening to this going, dude, this guy's squared away. I want to learn more about him. Where? Sure. What's the best way that people can follow you? Uh, best place to connect with me is on social media. Uh, you can find me on all the social media platforms at Deliver Fund Nick. That's Deliver as in D-E-L-I-V-E-R, Fund Nick, and Nick is N-I-C. You can go to the Deliver Fund website, which is deliverfund.org. And then a simple Google search brings up all kinds of podcasts I've done like this one and a lot of information about Deliver Fund and other other things that I'm involved in. And I try to be uh, try to be pretty transparent and, and public about uh, about what I'm up to. I like it. Well, brother, time is my greatest commodity. I can't make more of this stuff. And you've given me an awful lot of yours not even knowing me. So I appreciate you, brother, both for this time, but even more than that, the work that you guys are doing. Well, hey, thank you for uh, for helping us get the word out there and thank you for the work you do every day. You're welcome, brother. Take care. Thanks, Chris. Wow, ladies and gentlemen, what did you think from Nick McKinley? There's some people, and Nick Nick is one of them, there's some people that just think on a different wavelength than I do. And I'm not undervaluing or devaluing myself in saying that. I think there is room at the table uh, for a lot of this stuff, especially when it comes to first responder and veteran uh, health and wellness. But Nick just thinks differently than I do, and I think that's what makes him so successful in the jobs that he's done and the job that he's currently doing in taking the fight. To human traffickers. I really appreciate Nick and Deliver Fund for what they're doing. Hey, Jamie and I want to hear from you. We want to make this podcast better. Uh, please give us some ideas. There's a few different things you can do to communicate back to us. First and foremost, please follow us on whatever podcast platform you're consuming this on or on YouTube. That will cause the next episode to pop up. Also, if you're listening on Spotify or Apple, you can rate and review us. There's five stars waiting on our main page. We'd really appreciate a five-star rating that will increase our viewability on those uh, podcast platforms. However, folks, you've heard me say it. They're your stars. If we haven't earned five stars, keep your stars. Shoot me an email instead at chris at gravityct.com. Let us know how to make a better future marriage Monday topics or guests for me to interview. Folks, we only get to live this life once. Let's go out and take care of the people in our tribe. Take care of each other. God bless. God bless.